Another set of words we use, we pray that these places are workshops of the Holy Spirit. So I just wanted to tell you about that and encourage you, if you haven't already, to get involved in Connects here at First Free Methodist Church. And I also want to encourage you, if you would, to pray with me for SPU 
and pray specifically for the soul care ministry. In, in fact, I just invite you to do that with me now. God, into your hands, we commend these ministries, the Connects ministry here. Thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in drawing people together and drawing them closer to you. And for the work in the ministry of soul care at SPU and for the university itself, into your hands, we commend this ministry and trust you for the outcomes, for what may be kingdom outcomes, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, commercial over. <laughs> so now, for the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, we pray. You are our rock and our Redeemer, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, she was a master storyteller who could spin a tale at the drop of a hat, captivating us with different voices, curious turns of phrase, and descriptive language. And just in case you think I'm a little confused, I do know that today is not Mother's Day. But still, I want to tell you a little bit about my mom, especially about her as a grandma. Because she not only developed her storytelling skills for her grandkids, but she created an imaginary world based on a little girl, a character she called Sally Mandy, and her big black cat named Mr. Whiskers. And even as adults, my kids often would ask, Grandma, Tell us a Sally Mandy. <laughs> but what I want to point out to you is that my mom, a master storyteller, often took the very same plot lines and just reshaped them. You could say she reframed them for a different purpose. Almost always, here's how it went. Mr. Whiskers would get into trouble and Sally Mandy had to figure out how to get him out of trouble. Same plot line every time, but sometimes the story focused on how Mr. Whiskers really wasn't naughty. He was just curious. Or another time, the focus was how smart and creative Sally Mandy was in figuring it out. Or maybe it was that they needed to ask for help, even if that meant they had to admit to the parents that they had disobeyed. Same story, reframed for many a life lesson. And once the story would over, was over, the kids would beg, tell it again, Grandma Kay, tell it again. It's like candy. They couldn't get enough because they knew that a story reframed could be a gift. Well, today the church celebrates the ascension of Christ, and many of us don't know much about this biblical story or why it matters. Why the church dedicates a day in the calendar to it, why it's part of the Apostles' Creed, why scores of artists over the centuries have depicted this. What is the point of the ascension? Before we go there, 
Let me just give you a little side note. When Craig Brown asked me to preach and I said I was willing to preach on the Ascension, I told him, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the Ascension. And in typical fashion, he just laughed and said, don't worry, just do a few little magic tricks. That did not put me at ease. So please don't hold your breath waiting for me to pull a rabbit out of the hat today. That's not happening. But rather, as we explore the ascension, let's keep our eyes and our hearts open for some reframing. Now by that, I mean essentially when the same story or situation is understood or seen through a new lens or frame. Now that doesn't necessarily change the circumstances or the outcomes, but it does bring new kingdom, kingdom of God perspective and purpose to our lives. So as soon as I began to study the Ascension, I was kind of surprised by a few things. One, only one of the gospel writers includes this story and it's Luke and what's more, Luke tells the same story of the Ascension two different times. Remember, Luke is both the gospel writer and the writer of the book of Acts. And we, just both, we heard them both just read by Nolan. One is at the end of Luke's gospel and one at the beginning of Acts. So why? Why two narratives of the Ascension by the same author? Scholars have described this ascension as a narrative hinge that can swing two directions. It swings closed to end the gospel of Jesus, and it swings open to begin the story of the church. So there's a purpose in this retelling. It's not a mistake. In fact, Luke even says at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, verse 2, I already told you about this, essentially. So he knows what he's doing. And as the Gospel of Luke closes, we see again this ascension of Christ swinging the hinge shut. But the second telling of the same story in Acts has a different function. And the hinge swings open with a new frame. So let's take a, few, uh, a look at these two texts and at two artistic depictions. This might look like the scene from Luke 24, the very last lines of the gospel, where Jesus lifts his hands and blesses the disciples. And while he does, he's taken up into heaven. And then the disciples are worshiping and returning with great joy, continually praising God. This is a scene of triumph. This is a grand finale. Can you see the flag that Jesus is waving? The flag of victory. You can almost hear like a brass band playing at the reign of earth, his reign of earth, on earth ending and his reign in heaven commencing. Now contrast that with the account in Acts and let's focus on the disciples. When Jesus is taken up here, the text says it was before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from there's hid him from their sight. And they're left looking up into the sky, trying to figure out what just happened. In the artwork, 
Notice the odd dangling feet? Uh-huh. A little strange. And also notice the puzzled looks on the disciples' faces. They're dumbfounded. They're craning their necks. This is definitely not the same picture we had at the end of Luke's gospel. So we see that this narrative is refrained. But why? I believe it's because Acts is a birth story. It's the birth of the church. And this birth, interestingly, stems not out of a scene of triumph, but out of a scene of loss and bewilderment and unfulfilled hopes out of what we might call a liminal space. So what's happening here on a narrative level? Well, I believe that by reframing the ascension narrative, Luke tells us that it's out of loss, confusion, or liminal space, not out of triumph and victory, that God births the church. So, a question. What in-between or liminal, maybe confusing space am I in, are you in right now? And what invitation from God might there be for a reframe in the middle of that? Well, let's take another step deeper into the Acts narrative because we're going to find another reframing narrative for the disciples. Acts explains that Jesus had been with the disciples 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then the disciples ask in verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, for 40 days, he'd been talking about the kingdom of God. And they were hearing kingdom of Israel. Because from their frame of reference, the two things had to be one. That's what this Messiah was all about. Remember, these were a people who were oppressed under Roman rule. Things were bad. So they'd been waiting for this. They'd been expecting this for hundreds of years, and not just expecting it. Their understandings had been shaped by stories passed down generation to generation. This wasn't just a frivolous expectation on their part. It was coded into their cultural DNA. So they assumed now that Jesus' resurrection and reappearance after death meant this is it. They had to see him crucified, but now he's back, alive. Things should get better. The Messiah is going to triumph over all their problems. Israel, their people, would be restored to glory days. That's how the story's supposed to go. But Jesus' answer flips the script. And he says, no, wrong question. It's not for you to know only the Father has that authority, but... Something better, something better is coming. And then he ups and leaves them. 
Just imagine how strange this would be to watch him ascend and not just that. I wonder if it weren't also triggering for them. They'd already lived through his crucifixion. And now he was back and they'd had him for 40 days and then he's gone again? No doubt they were unstrung, unstrung by the ascension. It was not what they wanted or expected. So here's another reframe. God's purposes are not often fulfilled in the ways I expect or want. <laughs> Truth. God's purposes not often fulfilled the way I want them. So a question to consider. What am I asking or expecting God to fix or restore? How might I be feeling unstrung by unfulfilled expectations or a sense of loss? One point about this liminal space. Remember that while the disciples are still staring up into the clouds, two men in white appear. Now that harkens back to Luke's account of the resurrection where two men in white, gleaming white, also appear. And in the past, when I've read their words, the words that the two men say to the disciples at the ascension, they say, why are you looking into the sky? I've kind of read that as a reproach. And I don't like it. But I've had a bit of reframing myself as I've studied this text. Because, see, at the height of their loss, God sends two, two men to them, gleaming white. God doesn't leave them alone in their fear. And these two bring a message that really is a message of hope. They say, Jesus will return. And it's the hope that reorients them, literally redirects them as they head back to Jerusalem. The message is, even though Jesus is gone now, God has not abandoned them. And friends, I believe God still sends Messengers of hope. Amen? Well, let's just take a brief look at the promised power that they are supposed to receive. The Greek word that Luke uses here, dunamis, is important because it's distinct from another Greek word for power, exousia. Exousia means authority. But here the word is dunamis. It's not about authority or rule. It's the same word that we, out of which comes the concept of dynamite. It's something different. It's not just power to restore what we want or power to rule over. It's power, Jesus says, to bear witness. To bear witness. Keep in mind that these disciples at the Ascension now no longer had Jesus walking with them. He's gone. 
But he promises them power to bear witness to something that they no longer see. This God is one we can't see, we can't fathom, measure, categorize, or understand. There's some kind of strange upside-down economy at work here. Because we, too, are given power to bear witness to a mystery, to power that isn't derived from ruling or from knowing in the way that the world knows through zeros and ones or things color-coded or computed. No, a witness may or may not use words, but a witness knows something to be true because a witness has experienced something. The Holy Spirit power doesn't mean we have authority to snap our fingers and make the world the way we want it to be. It's power to base our lives on and bear witness to a God who, though we can't see him, is real. A God we can somehow experience and somehow know is with us. So here's our last reframe. Holy Spirit power isn't about authority or rule. Rather, dunamis is power to bear witness to God in the midst of confusion, unfulfilled expectations, and loss. So a question. What might it mean for me, for you, to receive this dunamis power? In the midst of my confusing, difficult, liminal space, what might it look like for me to bear witness to God in the midst of unknowns, anxiety, and a world of injustice? Well, I've given some hard questions, so I thought maybe I should try to answer one for myself. Hard work. <laughs> and just about the time I began um, studying these Ascension texts and getting ready to preach a few weeks back, our family received word that my sister, Miriam, we call her Mimi, has ovarian cancer. It was devastating news. And it still is, because Mimi, <laughs> has been and continues to be a rock, a rock for our family, a rock for me, one whose life in Christ is generous and grace-filled. So this diagnosis does not make any sense, <laughs> according to my frame, and I don't like it. I'm confused, and I'm angry, and I'm fearful. And I'm still looking up to heaven saying, what is going on? <laughs> this doesn't fit my model of the kingdom of God. Again, I see Mimi as one of the most faithful, Christ-centered disciples who does more good for others than most people I know. So I've been feeling unstrung that God isn't with us. Or why would this be happening? And yet I've heard Celeste 
you will receive power to bear witness in this sermon, in your life, to me, God says. Not because the outcomes will be necessarily what you want. Not even because we still don't know the outcomes. But because, Celeste, you belong to another kingdom. Kingdom you can't see. And because within you there is power that doesn't look like the world's power. And the narratives of my life can be reframed into a witness to God in the midst of unknowns, cancer, and triggering events. Well, I spoke to Mimi yesterday to be sure she's okay with me sharing this message. She graciously said yes. And then she told me how a line from Psalm 23 has been echoing, echoing in her heart and mind. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And she said, God is just comforting her with that day and night. And I thought, well, that's odd. <laughs> So who's the enemy, Mimi? She immediately said, fear. Fear is the enemy. And yet God is preparing a place of abundance, a table. A table in the presence of fear. And somehow I can sit at this table not knowing the outcome. but with a deep sense of God with me, preparing a table. I really think that is, for me, the ultimate reframe. God with us. God's ultimate, God's abundant purpose is not thwarted in every circumstance, in every story of our lives, even when we can't see it. And the Holy Spirit power bears witness to this truth that even as my sister deals with cancer, even as the violence of this world seems to escalate exponentially, even as you face overwhelming challenges and a swirling life, perhaps, with difficulties, confusion, and loss, God, the Almighty, the loving, the faithful God is with us, preparing a table. And we can trust this. We can live this. We can bear witness to this truth. So now we're going to move into a time of communion, and we do so by retelling the story, the story of Jesus with his disciples in the upper room around a table. It's a story of death. And so by coming forward today to receive the Lord's Supper, we're not just going to hear this retold, we're actually going to rehearse this. We're going to participate in this narrative. And by the reframing of the Holy Spirit today, I believe, I pray, that we'll actually receive 
from Jesus. Because somehow that story of 2,000 years ago gets metabolized into us and penetrates our fear, our confusion, the liminal spaces. So today, when you get a little piece of pita bread and you dip it in some juice, remember that you are actually receiving the broken body, the spilt blood of Christ. And may we receive power as we do to bear witness to the God who reframes our lives. Power to bear witness to the God who sets a table of abundance. Power to bear witness to the God who is always with us. May it be so. May it be so. Thank you.